Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we have two readings tonight. The first is from Exodus chapter 20. So if you turn to page 61 of the Pew Bibles, you'll find our reading there, our first reading there. We're just going to read one verse from Exodus chapter 20. It's verse 13, and it's on page 61. So keep a finger in page 61, and then turn over to page 810 as well. Page 810. And we're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. So first of all, Exodus chapter 20. And we're just reading verse 13 tonight. This is the sixth commandment. There are ten commandments, but this is the sixth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 13. And this is God's word to us. The sixth commandment says, You shall not murder. Just a few words. You shall not murder. And then we'll turn over to the New Testament and to Matthew chapter 5. And it's on page 810 of the Pew Bibles, so page 810. Matthew chapter 5, and we're reading from verse 21 down to verse 26. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said this. He said, You have heard heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I said to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Let's pray together. Father, as we've just confessed and sung, we are a moment and you are forever. You're the eternal God, the one who reigns through all the ages. And your word and your moral law also stands forever. And we pray that as we look at the next part of the commandments tonight, that you would help us, that you would be with us, that you would help us to see what your word says and that you would help us to apply this commandment to our hearts and lives. We pray that you'd come and help us by your Spirit, and that the name of the Lord Jesus would also be exalted. For we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. It was five o'clock on a winter's morning in Syria. Alongside the platform at Aleppo stood the train grandly designated in railway guides as the Taurus Express. It consisted of a kitchen and dining car, a sleeping car, and two local coaches. By the step leading up into the sleeping car stood a young French lieutenant, resplendent in uniform, conversing with a small, lean man, muffled up to the ears, of whom nothing was visible but a pink-tipped nose and the two points of an upward-curled moustache. It was freezingly cold, and this job of of seeing off a distinguished stranger was not one to be envied, but Lieutenant Dubosc performed his part manfully. 
Graceful phrases fell from his lips in polished French, not that he knew what it was all about. There had been rumors, of course, as there always were in such cases. The general, his general's temper had grown worse and worse, and there had, be, had, there had come fr- and there had come from had come this Belgian stranger all the way from England, it seemed. Uh, I wonder, can you name the highly su- successful, world-renowned book that begins in this way? It's such a famous story that it has been made into four, a film four times. The book has been sold uh, over a hundred uh, has sold over a hundred million copies worldwide, and it centres around a train journey being made by fourteen passengers. I'm sure you know it. You're bound to know it after all those clues. It is, of course, Murder on the Orient Express. That's how the book begins, with Hercule Poirot being introduced slowly and mysteriously. In some ways, it's the best example of a murder mystery novel. It has spawned so many other novels like it and has influenced writers since it was published. But it's worth stepping back and asking this question. Why do most classic books, films, TV programs have murder plots running through them? Generations come and go, but yet murder in literature and popular culture remains. What is it about murder that grabs our attentions and imaginations? If anything, it must be escapism. It must be the tendency to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities by seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. Isn't it strange how how murder is entertainment? How did that ever come about? How did that ever happen? Because what's clear from this commandment, the commandment that we're looking at tonight, the sixth commandment, is that murder is wrong. You shall not murder. That's the entire sixth commandment. In Hebrew, it's actually even shorter. It's just two words to be precise. Lo, which means no, and ratzak, which means murder. So lo, ratzak, two words in Hebrew, you shall not murder. Seems like an obvious, uncontroversial commandment. If any command could go unstated, any that we could simply assume, it's probably this one. Surely people from all times and places could agree that you shouldn't murder. Yes, it's fine to read a book or watch a TV program with a murder plot uh, as a plot line, but as to actually committing the deed, definitely not. Have you ever asked the question, though, why is murder wrong? Even if it's assumed to be wrong universally in the Western world, why is that the case? If you went through the country tonight and asked people, is murder wrong? 100% of people would say yes. But if you asked them why, they would probably say, well, it's, it's just not right. They, they, they might go a step further and say, well, if, our, if society, society is to function, if we're to feel safe and flourish as human beings, We can't kill each other whenever we want. But when it comes down to it, most people would defend the the rightness of this commandment by saying, well, it's it's just the way things work. You shouldn't murder. We all know that. But that leads to even more questions, doesn't it? Who decides whether your life is worth protecting? Who's to say that your life being snuffed out wouldn't make the world a better place? Now, this is where, where Christian ethics come in. Well, what is it that we believe as reformed evangelical Christians? Well, we believe in the sanctity of life. We believe that every human being is created in the image of God. Every person on the planet is an image bearer. So, In simple terms, the sixth commandment prohibits taking innocent human life. 
So the word, word murder is a good translation of the original Hebrew, which is ratzak. It's more accurate a translation than kills. You might have remembered, uh, I think it's the authorised version has, thou shalt not kill, you shall not murder is a better translation. Uh, the, the Hebrew word ratzak is used in a few passages in the first five books of the Bible that mention the cities of refuge. Uh, they were places where someone who had committed unintentional manslaughter could flee to before outraged friends and family members could gain their revenge. Outside of the passages about the cities of refuge, ratzak isn't used very often. Comparatively, the Hebrew word katal, translated to kill, occurs hundreds of times. So there's a difference between the two words. Uh, as we see in the Old Testament, the Sixth Commandment doesn't prohibit self-defense. So that's the first thing that it doesn't prohibit. Uh, Exodus 22, 2 and 3 says, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him, the person who has killed him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. In other words, if someone had no other choice but to kill as a way to defend himself from an intruder, he was not guilty. But verse 3 adds, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. That means if observers could see what was happening and could, could discern that killing wasn't necessary, the one who killed was guilty. Self-defense then is not a violation of the sixth commandment. As well as that, we see from Genesis 9 that capital punishment was also not considered a violation of the Sixth Commandment. So Genesis 9 verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Capital punishment for murder was not considered an assault on the image of God, but a defense of his image. Human life is so precious that the taking of it was to be punished severely. The famous eye for an eye principle that is set out in Exodus 21 wasn't a cruel and unusual punishment. In Moses' day in, in the ancient Near East, it was quite a humane law. It set a precedent that the punishment must fit and not exceed the crime, life for life, no less and no more. Now, this is the same principle that's repeated in Romans 13. The governing authorities are God's servant for good, an avenger to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Capital punishment was also not considered a violation of the Sixth Commandment then. Neither was war. In certain circumstances, peace is always the goal, uh, but war is sometimes necessary to defend peace. Uh, the Old Testament clearly doesn't prohibit warfare because God sent Israel into battle and claimed to be a warrior God who fought for them. Uh, Romans 13 is again helpful in that it tells us that the state is to protect the innocent when necessary. And as you might remember, when Jesus encountered the centurion in the Gospels, he didn't tell him, go and sin no more. And if you're really going to follow me, quit being a centurion in the Roman army. As well as that, Cornelius, who was the head of a regiment, was called a God-fearer. So the sixth commandment, therefore, doesn't prohibit that sort of killing, self-defense, capital punishment, and just wars. Now, there are all sorts of debates about those three things. There are all sorts of gray areas and let me give you one example from the three. Uh, if you've been following the news recently, the US and UK governments launched attacks on a group called the Houthis. It was in response to attacks in a busy shipping lane from that group. The, there have been all sorts of debates as to whether or not military action was required. The UK government gave the green light to military action without a vote in Parliament, and there were debates about that as well. 
Now, I'm not really wading into the debate, but it's just an example to show you how, how hotly contested these things are. Just war, for some people, uh, is on a sliding scale. There are grey areas when it comes to self-defence, capital punishment and just wars. What, is, what, what the Sixth Commandment is clear on, though, is that it prohibits premeditated, intentional murder. And we see this several times in the Old Testament. For example, <clears throat> there's the murder of the Levite's concubine or, or, or wife and the murder of Naboth for his vineyard. It also prohibits intentional but unpremeditated murder, what we might call voluntary manslaughter. It prohibits reckless homicide or involuntary manslaughter. If a, if a drunk driver kills someone, for example, there was a distinction in Israelite law between accidental death and death motivated by hatred. In that way, the Old Testament was wise in considering the intention behind death. The, the Sixth Commandment forbids neg negligent homicide too. Now let me read you some obscure verses from Deuteronomy and Exodus. They're going to seem obscure and irrelevant, but I'll explain them after you've heard them. So this is Deuteronomy 22 verse 8. It says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. And then this is Exodus 21, 28 and 29. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been unaccustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. So pretty obscure laws. Most of us aren't scared of cows chasing us when we go out for a walk. But we do put scaffolding up around a building that's being erected. And those laws are reminding us that we must protect people from falling if they're working at height. But through these obscure laws, God was saying that people had to care about their neighbour. They couldn't just say, well, you fell off the roof or you were gored by a cow. It's your fault. He commanded them to care about the well-being of their neighbour by putting a parapet around the roof and keeping difficult beasts enclosed whenever necessary. Hope you see the principle there. The, the, the sixth commandment then prohibits much more than cold-blooded, premeditated murder that we so, see so often on our TV screens. It prohibits killing or, or causing to be killed by direct action or inaction any legally innocent person. There's more to it than meets the eye, just like the other commandments. So that's what the sixth commandment prohibits. Let's think about how the sixth commandment speaks to our culture next. Uh, the, the, the Sixth Commandment applies to us in all the same ways that we've talked about. We still care about murder, involuntary, and voluntary manslaughter, and all these technical terms. But there are two areas that we need to, to highlight that are particularly controversial in our culture today. And before I talk about these two things, I want to say two things. The first is that I'm not an expert on either of these two issues. The things that we're about to talk about are nuanced and I'm not, I won't be able to talk about every detail relating to them. And the second is connected to the first. I'm not an expert, but what I'm about to say is more than just my opinion. If you wanted a surefire, surefire way to empty a church, it would be by allowing me to give my opinion on all sorts of issues. You really don't want to know. So you shouldn't go home thinking that the minister said he is against these two things. What I'm about to say is more than just my opinion. This comes from the Bible. And if we believe that the Bible is authoritative and true, then it's our duty to talk about what it teaches. With those two things in place, 
The sixth commandment calls us to talk about abortion and euthanasia. The sixth commandment prohibits abortion. Psalm 139 verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. The the psalmist here is speaking about life that is just beginning. Uh, A moment or two we read ago, uh, we mentioned the eye for an eye law in Exodus 21. If you read the context of that law, it has to do with injuring a woman's baby while still in the womb. There were, there, there were punishments for doing so because that life was considered life. And until very recently, the church has universally opposed abortion. A Calvin commenting on that Exodus 21 passage says this. He says, For the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being, and it is a, almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. Life begins at conception. That's a scientific fact. Any embryology book will tell you that the life of each one of us traces back to the zygote, to the moment of conception, We didn't begin with something different. We've all been formed from that original life, which is still us. Now, all of that is deeply controversial in light of the culture we're living in. In the UK, since the 1967 Abortion Act, there have been over 8 8 million abortions in England and Wales. That's more than the population of the island of Ireland. Over 98% of abortions are for reasons of social or personal convenience, Less than 1% of abortions are for a risk to the life or grave permanent risk to the physical or mental health of the woman. In 2019, abortion was decriminalised in Northern Ireland. Before, before the law change, uh, the, the Northern Ireland abortion rate was seven times lower than the abortion rate of the UK. But we, we are where we are now. And to say out loud, in public, the things that we've said already tonight is becoming more and more difficult. Does it mean that we don't say them? No, it definitely doesn't. Does it mean that we get angry and grab our pitchforks about this issue? No, we shouldn't do that. In this highly complex, deeply divisive, often personalised debate, we speak the truth in love. And life begins at conception and the sixth commandment prohibits abortion. As well as that, the sixth commandment prohibits euthanasia. I I don't know if you've noticed this, but our culture is talking more and more about assisted suicide. There's a very telling and notable opinion piece published in a national newspaper before Christmas. Dame Esther Ranson wrote an article with the title, We gave my dog a painless death. The law means I can't have the same. The premise of the article is that assisted suicide should be made legal in the UK. It's not at the moment, but just as we saw huge social changes in the previous decade with same-sex marriage and abortion, so you can be sure that changes are coming in regards to euthanasia. Legal and medical experts point to a number of problems with assisted suicide laws. Some of the laws don't require notification of family members, They don't specify which kind of doctor must diagnose you. They also allow you to pick up your own medication at your local chemist and then take them yourself. And that's to say nothing about doctors getting their terminal diagnosis wrong. 
On this issue, we can't let foggy definitions of compassion cloud our thinking. Here's the key distinction when it comes to talking about assisted dying. We're not talking about the termination of treatment. We're talking about the termination of life. And there's a massive difference. Euthanasia laws are different to DNRs, do not resuscitate orders, for example. Assisted suicide laws have consequences most people don't think about. The Netherlands was the first nation to allow legal assisted suicide. And over time, they've seen the voluntary become involuntary. So more and more requests for assisted suicide in the Netherlands Netherlands are coming from family members, not from the patients themselves. During the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, Dutch medics refused to obey orders by Nazi troops to let the elderly and terminally ill die. In 2001, Holland became the first country to give legal status to doctor-assisted suicide. One person noted that it only took one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. Culturally speaking, the sixth commandment is dynamite because it speaks to huge cultural sins that we're willing to tolerate and turn a blind eye to. The baseline teaching of this commandment is that every human life is precious. Unborn life is precious. Children with special needs are precious. Aging parents are precious, even when they don't remember because they're suffering from dementia. They're still made in the image of God. All of life matters to God. And the sixth commandment is there to protect it. So what the sixth commandment prohibits, how the sixth commandment speaks to our culture, and how the sixth commandment is deepened and transformed by Jesus. That's our final point this evening. We're we're moving now from cultural analysis to heart analysis. It's all very well for me to stand here and complain about the way in which our culture ignores and breaks the Sixth Commandment, but it's not terribly applicable tonight to me and to you. If anything, if we stopped at this point, there would be the temptation to feel rather smug about how much better we are compared to other people. Uh, We very deliberately had two Bible readings this evening, the Sixth Commandment, as it's found in Exodus 20.13, and another reading from Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deepens and transforms the Sixth Commandment and helps us to understand its true significance. The Sixth Commandment not only prohibits violent acts of murder, but all violent emotions and intentions of the heart. It's what I said to the boys and girls earlier. What's the nastiest thing you can ever say to anyone? I hate you. The Sixth Commandment prohibits violent emotions and intentions as well as physical acts. You and I can be 100% murder-free, but still face the wrath of God if our life is marked by anger, bitterness, insults, and rage. A man called David Paulison wrote a book called Good and Angry. And in the book, he has a chapter called Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? And it's very clever because the whole chapter is only one word long. Let me read the chapter. One word long. Yes. And that's all it says. The chapter is just... One word long, yes. Do you have a serious problem with anger? And rightly so. You you, you and I have an anger problem. We're probably on a sliding scale, but we have an anger problem. And if we don't get it under control, we may be in danger of hell. And that's not all that Jesus says about anger. He gives us two illustrations in Matthew 5, one about going to the temple and one about going to court. And neither is about our anger. 
Jesus says that our anger is so serious that we should not only do what we can to eliminate, eliminate it in our heart, but also do what we can to prevent it and alleviate it in others. The, the sixth commandment then doesn't just forbid physical murder or, or even simply pro- prohibit murder of the heart. It positively calls us to seek reconciliation with others. There's something else to notice from what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says that if you are an angry person, an angry fool, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That's Matthew 5, 26. And what he's saying there is that if you insist on pouring out the cup of your wrath, there's another cup for you to drink. It's really quite something. It's really quite convicting. Jesus makes the one commandment we would have thought that we were all doing pretty well at, feeling pretty good about, into one of the commandments we all feel pretty bad about. I mean, who here tonight hasn't been angry in the past week? You can be righteous in your anger, but that's not the way most of us are when we're angry. We show it in the way we speak to the people closest to us. We explode at our children over the simplest things. It's like Hiroshima when someone drives too slowly or cuts in in front of us on the road. Jesus says that you will not go out until you pay the last penny. That's how serious anger is. So what do we do? We've all had this cup of wrath at some point in our lives. If not so that others can see it, then in our hearts we were fuming, scheming, steaming mad, drinking or bubbling, exploding cup of wrath like volcanoes that are about to pop. So what do we do? Well, we look to the Garden of Gethsemane and find Jesus there with another cup. As he's facing death on the cross, he prays, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's the cup? It's not the cup of our wrath, but it's the cup of God's wrath for sinners like us. It's his righteous, perfect anger directed towards people like us, people who have so often displayed such unrighteous, unholy anger. And ultimately it says, if this is the only way, Father, I'll take it. We deserve that cup, but he took it upon himself. The only one who never violated any of the commandments or committed murder in the least degree in his heart was murdered for angry sinners like us. We have all poured out the cup of wrath on one another, but only Jesus drank from that cup for us. And so as we look at the sixth commandment, we look to him because he is our perfect saviour and he has kept it perfectly and he has died so that we might live and so that we might be able to keep this commandment as well. Just like last week, we've moved our pastoral prayer to the end of our service so that we can pray through some of the things that we've talked about this evening. So with that in mind, and with all that we've said this evening, let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that Jesus drank the cup of your wrath so that we might be rescued and saved Tonight, in response to all that we've thought about, we first of all want to begin by repenting of the times when we've been angry against you and others that we love. We confess that our hearts are at times filled with violent emotions and thoughts. We may never commit violent, murderous acts, but yet our hearts are a mess. Father, 
Forgive us for every unkind word, every unkind thought, for the times we've wished other people harm so that we might benefit or they might suffer. Lord, instead of feeling like we're doing well when it comes to this commandment, we, we realize how, how far short we fall. That, that is the purpose of your law, in a sense, though, to convict us of sin and to point us to our Savior. And how we praise you for him. How we thank you for him. How we thank you for his perfect life and for how he was never sinfully angry. Lord, we pray that this week you might help us to put to death anger in our lives. Help us to control our emotions and to look to you for help whenever we sense them getting out of control. Father, we need your grace in this area. So we pray that you would come and do a work in our hearts and lives. And Father, we also want to pray about some of the wider societal sins that we've mentioned this evening. Our, our hearts break at the two issues we've thought through, however briefly. Tonight we want to pray that abortion legislation would be repealed in Northern Ireland, that there would be a turning back from the liberalisation of abortion laws that we've seen passed in the past number of years. We know this is a sensitive and difficult issue to talk about. We know that so often we hear personal emotive arguments in favour of it but your word is so clear lord life begins at conception and every life that begins is precious we pray that our culture would value life from the moment of conception we pray that our culture would turn from the darkness that currently envelops it we pray that people would see that there's a way out of the darkness they're experiencing and going through through the light of the world the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that our culture would value life from the moment of conception and we also pray that our culture would value life as it comes to an end. The elderly are so precious to us. So many of us know and love people currently in their later years. Help us to care for them. Help us to look after them. Help us to value them. In all of this we pray that the church would be would be a shining beacon of light in a dark world. How might we shine like stars in a wicked and crooked generation? By remembering, by teaching, by believing, by telling others, by speaking the truth in love that every human life is precious. Father, we thank you for giving us life. We thank you for every breath we've ever taken. We pray that you would be gracious to us and grant us our next breath. That you would be gracious to give us more time here in this world. But ultimately we thank you for the life that Jesus has given us and promises us in eternity. In that place where darkness is no more. In that place where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Where death shall be no more. Where there will be no more, cry no more mourning or crying or pain anymore. For those former things will have passed away. Thank you for our time together tonight. Help us by your spirit as we think these things through. And take us all to our homes in safety as well. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.